Welcome to the landscape and happy new year to you. This is your show about America's parks and public lands from the Center for Western Priorities. I am Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. Today on the show, we're talking about conservation easements. We'll get into that in a bit, but first, let's do the news. Since our last episode, we learned that domestic uranium mining has resumed at three locations in the U.S. following an eight-year hiatus. The resurgence is driven by rising uranium prices, in part due to the Russian-Ukrainian war. One of the mines is located in Arizona near the Grand Canyon. Formerly known as the Canyon Mine, the Pinyon Plain Mine is located within the footprint of the Baj Nawabsho Itakukveni Ancestral Footprints of the Grand Canyon National Monument. The designation of the monument prohibits the establishment of new mines within its boundaries, but the Pinyon Plain Mine is grandfathered in. Go back and listen to our episode on the monument if you want to hear about how uranium mining near the Grand Canyon threatens the Havasupai tribe. The two other mines are the LaSalle and Pandora mines located in southeast Utah. All of the mines are owned by international mining company Energy Fuels, and E&E News reports that more mining projects are scheduled to come online in Colorado. Well, I do have a feeling that uranium mining is going to be one of the big stories that we're following in 2024. There is another one, another story that we are following this year. It's a new anti-public lands conspiracy theory that has popped up in the last week or so. I'm going to do my best to simplify this, but like most conspiracy theories, it's a little wonky and based with just the tiniest bit of truth to what's going on here. It starts with a proposal for a new investment tool that Wall Street is interested in. It's called a natural asset company, or an NAC. The idea here is that you can put a value on nature, not just property values of land, but the value of intact ecosystems. Now, Wall Street wants to be able to trade these natural asset companies like anything else, any other stock and bond on the stock exchange. The SEC has proposed listing natural asset companies on the New York Stock Exchange, and that prompted a full-scale freakout by anti-conservation folks like the American Stewards of Liberty and now even the Republican Attorneys General Association. So how does public lands fit into all of this? Well, the opponents are trying to say that natural asset companies will lead to the privatization of public lands and even result in selling off our national parks to China. This is crazy, of course. There's no way to do that. That requires Congress. Okay, end of story. But the proponents of this conspiracy theory are trying to claim that the natural asset companies are connected somehow to the Bureau of Land Management's proposed public lands rule that we have talked about a whole bunch on this show. The bottom line here, there is no connection between this SEC proposal and the BLM rule, but that will not stop folks in Congress and these Republican attorneys general from looking under the bed, finding a new boogeyman to try and scare their followers about. Tony Caligieri is the president and CEO of Colorado Open Lands, a nonprofit land trust that exists to protect Colorado's land and water resources. Colorado Open Lands works primarily with private landowners to place voluntary agreements called conservation easements on their property. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Let's jump in here. Um, we've talked about conservation easements before on this podcast, most recently in our Farm Bill episode, but that was a while back. So, Tony, can you remind us what a conservation easement is? 
Sure. So as you said in your intro, uh, a conservation easement is a voluntary agreement between a landowner and an entity like Colorado Open Lands. Uh, conservation easements can be held by private nonprofit organizations like Colorado Open Lands, or they can be uh, held by a government entity in some cases. Uh, but the essence of those agreements are that the landowner agrees to give up certain rights that they normally have with that land. Those, those are things like the right to subdivide that land into small parcels, the right to develop it heavily with homes and businesses, um, and sometimes even the right to sell the water rights separately from the land. And while it's a voluntary agreement, it is a binding agreement. And not only is it a binding agreement with the landowner, but it's a binding agreement with the land. So a conservation easement and the restrictions contained in a conservation easement actually run with the land, even if a landowner sells that to a future buyer. I, I've heard the metaphor of property rights being a bundle of sticks. Um, so which which sticks in that bundle often are we, are we talking about here? You mentioned water rights or development rights. What, what else can come into play? Sure. So um, that's a very good analogy. Um, conservation easements uh, are actually, while they are similar to each other, each one is also unique. So depending on the the desires of the landowner and the vision of the landowner or the family of that land, um, we can adapt a conservation easement. But the fundamental uh, restrictions that or the, the rights that are given up are the right to subdivide that land into small parcels, uh, the right to build multiple buildings on the parcel. Um, sometimes the if there are water rights that are attached to the land, you give up the right to sell those water rights separately from the land. So that water has to stay on the land, normally in irrigation, normally what we call historic use. Uh, there's also other rights, though. There's rights for energy development, for surface disturbance, for oil and gas, for gravel mining, to build roads on it. Uh, so it really can depend on, it depends on the landowner, but fundamentally it's the development rights and the subdivision rights uh, that we look to limit. Awesome. Um, so also in the intro, we mentioned that Colorado Open Lands is a land trust. What is a land trust and what do you guys do as a land trust? Sure. So a land trust is essentially an organization that engages in these agreements with landowners. Uh, and once the once the agreement uh, is complete and the, the what we call is a uh, the conservation easement is in place, we then hold a perpetual responsibility to steward that land to make sure that the landowner, whether it's the owner that did the conservation easement or a subsequent owner, we make sure that that owner uh, abides by the agreement that we all signed. So we have to go out and visit each parcel that we do a conservation easement on each year to make sure that the that not only is the agreement being upheld, but the conservation values that we cited in that agreement, such as wildlife habitat or scenic uh, views or open space, we have to make sure that those conservation values are being honored and protected. Uh, and so that's a perpetual responsibility, which is a bit unusual for a nonprofit organization because essentially we make a promise never to go out of business. And the the benefit for the landowner here is fairly straightforward. It it's cash. Is that effectively it? Um, and, and what does that mean for the landowners that you partner with? Sure. So you know, doing a conservation easement on your land, you're never going to realize the full cash value of the development 
of that land. But in order to do a conservation easement, so therefore, by definition, you have to have some sort of conservation ethic. You have to be willing to take less than your land is worth in order to do this. But there are a series of incentives. Uh, most common are federal tax deductions. And in the state of Colorado, a very robust state tax credit program that you can get tax credits for the value of the development that you're giving up. And then in some cases, some federal and state agencies, depending on their priorities, will also offer partial cash payments directly to a landowner for the value of the development rights they're giving up. And then on the flip side, if the the cash and the tax benefits go to the landowner, what are the benefits then to the land and to the ecosystem? And, and is that how does that play into your role deciding who gets an easement? Sure. So in order to do a conservation easement and qualify for any kind of payment or tax benefit, the land does have to qualify under regulations that have been established by the IRS. And those things are things like scenic values, uh, wildlife habitat, relatively natural habitat that's open for agriculture, uh, sometimes also conservation easements can protect educational or recreational opportunities. So we can also put conservation easements on parkland, for instance, which is used for public recreation. And then often, of course, in agriculture, uh, that's food production. Uh, so while there are benefits to the landowner uh, for doing a conservation easement in the way of incentives, there really also has to be some sort of public benefit of that land for the general public in order for that to qualify for a conservation easement under IRS law. What are some misconceptions about conservation easements? Yeah, you know, there's there's 66 million acres of land in Colorado. Um, one of the misconceptions of, of conservation easements is that because Colorado has about 40 million acres of public land, we don't need to, quote unquote, protect any more land. But I think what people don't understand is that just because land is public doesn't mean it's protected. Public land can be leased for grazing, for energy development, for roads. There are ski resorts on public lands. So there's lots of uses of public lands. And that's not necessarily good or bad, but it is a difference in that conservation easements actually protect the land. I think the other misconception uh, that we deal with sometimes is that um, conservation easements are something that large, wealthy landowners do just for the tax benefits. But if you're really interested in getting the cash value for your land, you're not going to go through the process of doing a conservation easement. In most cases, the land that we do conservation easements are are, are lands that are owned by farmers and ranchers uh, with pretty low incomes. And so the conservation easement incentives that they get are often used to keep that operation afloat, maybe for another generation. And so that money generally goes back into the rural economies uh, where those properties are. Keep keeping farms and ranches within families so they don't have to either sell to, to mega corporations or to condos and that kind of Exactly. I mean, oftentimes if, if land is passed down and a ranch is, is passed from one generation to the other in order to pay the taxes or in order to make ends meet, or maybe there are two children in that family that want a ranch and they can't quite afford to do it with the parcel that they have, the conservation easement and the incentives that come with it can often be the difference between allowing that ranch to continue as open space or, or requiring it to be sold for development so that the family can pay the expenses. And while there are financial benefits to a family or to a landowner that does a conservation easement, it's kind of hard to explain to the elk 
or the deer or the eagles that call that land, that property home and to say whether or not, you know, the agricultural operation is viable or not viable. Because when it comes to wildlife, they just need a place to live. Eagles are terrible at reading topo maps. They're also uh, yeah. bad at knowing the difference between public land and private Aren't land. Aren't they, so, though? Yeah. So creating that connectivity is really important. <laughs> All right. So Colorado Open Lands has joined with other conservation groups in Colorado and set a goal to conserve 3.3 million acres of private land in Colorado by 2033. So we got you got a decade left on that goal. How is that going? And how does that fit into this broader national goal of protecting 30 by 30 across all public, private land and waters? Sure. So for that to happen, we basically have, we are setting a goal to conserve as much land in the next 10 years as this uh, set of organizations has done in the past 40 years. So it's a very aggressive goal. And one of the things that we're trying to do in order to meet that goal is to increase the incentives uh, that are available for landowners, because that is a really important component of for the land conservation. So that's also something we're working on. It's not just the land conservation projects themselves, but public policy has a lot to do with how, how fast land conservation can happen. So, Tony, in your conversations with private landowners, do you mention how their voluntary conservation efforts can contribute to 3030? Sorry, 30 by 30. Or do you just leave that out of the conversation or does it depend on who you're talking to? You know, it depends on who you're talking to. I think the problem uh, with federal uh, pronouncements and policies is that they can be misunderstood. They can be mischaracterized. You know, what we're doing in Colorado is we're trying to conserve uh, critical wildlife habitat, places where our local food is grown. And so as far as sort of the, the fancy big policy uh, pronouncements that come out of D.C., uh, we just sort of keep our head down and keep doing our work. And, <laughs> and for the most part, I think that's important to landowners. They want to know that, the, that where this uh, effort is coming from is a homegrown effort. And for us in Colorado, you know, we, we're glad that 30 by 30 has raised awareness around land conservation, but it's not really the driver on how we do our work. I want to dive a little bit into the value of land. Obviously, with the IRS rules and the way conservation easements generally work, it's based on the potential sale value, and that comes down to development. And in Colorado, that means you're talking about mountain towns uh, and areas where there is that growth pressure, whether it's condos, golf courses, whatever else going in. Um, but that dollar value is not the same necessarily as ecological value. And the the dollar value of 100, 200 acres around Vail or Aspen or somewhere like that is probably different than the value, dollar value out on the Eastern Plains that may have a really significant ecological value, either in terms of migration patterns or biodiversity, whatever there is, are there folks thinking about how to reconcile that? And is there a way to, in the future maybe to compensate landowners for the ecological value of their land and not just the development value? I think that's a very good point that you make, and it's something that we think a lot about. It is, in fact, true that because uh, the federal tax benefits especially are based around regulations by the IRS. It's all about the monetary value that you're giving up 
just like you would donate a piece of art to a museum or a car to a public radio, um, you get that monetary value. But it is true, and it's a little perverse in some ways, where you can't do conservation in places where there's not a lot of development pressure because there's not a lot of value in giving up your development rights. But at the same time, that's some of the most economical conservation you could be doing. if You could get ahead of some of where the development pressure is. So we do think a lot about that. I will say that that is one of the reasons why we've been, uh, as a community, uh, advocating uh, the expansion of the state tax incentives, the state tax credit program, because that can be separate from the federal IRS regulations. While the two programs are tied together, the state incentives give us an opportunity to be more flexible and think about alternative valuations and think about not just what are you giving up, but what is that land providing and valuing ecosystem services and, and those kinds of things. So it's definitely, I think, going to be sort of the next iteration of land conservation will involve alternative valuation for sure. So Tony, um, getting back to the habitat and, and sort of segueing out of that question, can you target specific areas for conservation with these easements, like like migration corridors or sensitive habitat? Um, or do you just kind of have to take what comes, walks through the door? Um, how, do you, how do you make those decisions? Sure. It's a little of both. Uh, so sometimes we have landowners that contact us out of the blue and we go out and look at their property and we realize they have incredible wildlife habitat or they're providing an incredible scenic view shed uh, for the public. But oftentimes we actually do look at uh, properties that are in critical, for instance, critical elk migration corridors. That's an area that we focused a lot on. And we can go and talk to that landowner about that. Sometimes they don't even realize how valuable their land is from a wildlife perspective. The other tool, though, that's very helpful is sometimes uh, the federal or the state governments make funding available specifically to preserve certain habitats. So something we've done in northwest Colorado, for instance, which is home to some of the largest, most intact Gunnison sage-grouse habitat, which is a threatened species. We can go to landowners and we can say, you may or may not have thought about conservation easements on your property in the past, but we just want you to know that for the next three or four years, the federal government will purchase development rights at 75 cents on the dollar cash. And so if you're interested in this incentive, let us know. We'd love to work with you. So we can sometimes use those incentive programs as a sales pitch to landowners who might have thought, you know, they've heard about conservation easements, they don't quite understand them, or maybe they've said, you know, there's not a lot of development value in my neighborhood, so I, I haven't really been interested. And then they find out about these new incentive programs, and then it can really uh, open up the whole conversation. So in those sorts of situations, Colorado Open Lands would act uh, basically as a, a middleman or effectively a government contractor in ensuring that the conservation is happening, but the funding is coming from the federal side? Yeah, what we do is we use our private philanthropy dollars to raise federal and state money that goes directly to landowners to purchase conservation easements. I wouldn't say we're a government contractor because that's <laughs> going to shut down a lot of conversations. <laughs> um, but I will say that sometimes the state government comes to us or, the, or a county government comes to us and says, look, there's this critical piece of ground that is really important for a migratory corridor for wildlife. And we know this family is probably not keen on working with the government, but they might be willing to work with a nonprofit organization because, you know, once that conservation easement is completed, as I said, 
you have to go out and visit that land every year. You have to monitor it. You have to make sure uh, that the conservation values are being protected. Oftentimes, people would rather have a private organization out there doing that than a government official, quote unquote, monitoring their property. So it can depends on the landowner and the temperament of the landowner. But, uh, probably facilitator, a better word there than, than, than there contractor. Go. All right. I like that. So, Tony, up until now, we've been focused on land conservation, but I read in the news that Colorado Open Lands recently helped create a conservation easement aimed specifically at conserving groundwater in the San Luis Valley. Is this the first of its kind in Colorado or the country? And, and can you tell us more about how it worked? Sure. So as far as we know, the conservation easement we did that encumbered groundwater pumping in the San Luis Valley is the first of its kind uh, in the nation. Uh, If you'll indulge me for a moment, let me just step back and explain that, you know, 40 years ago when land conservation first started, uh, nobody really thought about water. So we would go out and we would try to conserve open tracts of land and not think about what water was attached to it and what the water rights were involved. And we started to realize that some of these landowners would conserve their open land, but then they'd sell their water rights off separately. So that land became essentially non-productive, not really good for wildlife, no longer irrigated. So we started to conserve land and say that we always had to have the water conserved with the land. Well, that actually creates a problem for landowners because they say, well, I'm not going to do a conservation easement because my water rights are more valuable than my land development rights. So that actually became a problem. So we've tried to become more flexible and say, you can't sell your water rights off when you do a conservation easement, but you can lease them three out of 10 years, give you a little more flexibility and also allow you to monetize uh, your your one of your greatest assets as a rancher or farmer. So you sort of fast forward to the San Luis Valley. We've been working in the San Luis Valley for more than a decade. And one of the things that that community is facing is the fact that they've been pumping groundwater at an unsustainable rate for their irrigated agriculture. And they were faced with the prospect of the state coming in and saying, we're just going to start shutting down wells, which would of course devastate a, a rural economy that depends on agriculture, and it is also not a high-income area. So it, was a, it would be a very tenuous situation if that happened. So we started thinking, can we take the tools that we have in a conservation easement, and instead of encumbering surface water that's used for irrigation like we do in most places of the state, could we actually value how much a landowner is giving up if they reduce their groundwater pumping? And can we write a conservation easement? to do so. So it was a partnership between landowners, uh, water conservation districts, attorneys who helped us write the language, uh, and biologists who helped us figure out where the best places are to to start reducing groundwater pumping. And we created this uh, conservation easement, which encumbers groundwater. And so in this way, we're actually protecting a resource not on top of the land, but underneath of the land. And we tie those two together. Uh, and so far, it's it's proved successful, and uh, we're beginning to talk to more and more landowners about doing this. Do you think that's something that potentially scales to other states? I'm, I'm thinking about Arizona, where you've got this incredible problem with alfalfa, where they're just the, uh, the, the levels of groundwater is shrinking dramatically, um, or, or California, where you've got Imperial Valley farmers with all sorts of... of water rights that they're getting bought out for, you know, 77, 80 million dollars a year. Where else could this sort of playbook come into play, especially as we look at uh, the aridification of the West? You know, I think this is a a model 
and a tool in the toolbox that can be useful anywhere in the country. And the New York Times has been running a series of articles on groundwater pumping. And I, th I think the statistic was that of communities that depend on groundwater, 80% of the groundwater pumping is being pumped in unsustainable rate. So eventually something's going to have to be done. And the best way, and, and we believe the most economical way, is to enter into these voluntary agreements and compensate people for voluntarily giving up this groundwater pumping. You know, just in the San Luis Valley, as an example, we could be looking at drying up 75,000 acres of irrigated farmland. That's one little spot in Colorado. If you look at what the New York Times has been investigating, um, there are millions of acres that probably need to be uh, either dried up or at least the groundwater needs to be reduced. The pumping needs to be reduced. And so we've had calls from land trusts all over the country interested in this model. And the most exciting thing for us is that our Senator Bennett in Colorado here is actually going to try to put language in the next farm bill uh, to incentivize and make sure that groundwater easements can qualify for federal funding under the existing conservation programs of the, of the Farm Bill. We think it'll set a national model and, and it'll really be a tool to help address uh, groundwater depletion across the country. That's really exciting. And we were actually going to ask you about the Farm Bill next. Obviously, it's something that affects your work with conservation easements. And we did talk about this on a prior episode of The Landscape. But could you Tell us about what you're looking at in the, this farm bill and what's sort of at the top of your list um, to see in that in that legislation. Sure. So, of course, you know, through some of the legislative uh, initiatives passed in the first couple of years of the Biden administration, there have been um, historic amounts of conservation dollars injected into the conservation programs in the farm bill. So most of the direct payments that go to uh, land conservation to purchase conservation easements come through the farm bill. The funding levels have, have really been increased dramatically through the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bills and things like that. Uh, what we're looking for are, uh, are, are ways to introduce more innovative conservation into these traditional programs like groundwater conservation. So that's a perfect example of where we're not looking to start a new program. We're just starting, we just wanna make sure that some of these innovations will actually qualify for the funding that's available. Um, so it's really an opportunity to open up these programs a little bit more, to be a little bit more creative. Um, so some, some of those farm bill programs uh, can actually do more to impact water conservation in addition to land conservation. Sounds like a lot of potential there, especially when you consider the farm bill is generally a five-year bill, an opportunity to really move the needle here into the next, uh, you know, through this decade. Um, I, I want to look at the big picture then. You've got the farm bill coming up, hopefully in ways that make it easier to do uh, more innovative things like you've been talking about. Is the interest you're seeing in conservation easements in Colorado growing or declining? And um, and where do you see the funding uh, going in these next five to 10 years? Sure. So in Colorado, the, the state tax credit program is really the largest driver of conservation. And that's something that we as a community are working to make sure that um, uh, does not sunset and that it is funded at a level sufficient to meet demand. 
to your question about demand, we are seeing astronomical demand for conservation easements. We as one organization have a wait list of more than 100 projects totaling more than 250,000 acres. That's more acreage than all of the Colorado state parks combined. And the reason why I think is twofold. One is during the pandemic, as people were moving out into the country, as rural, as people could live anywhere they want because they don't necessarily have to be in an office every day, we saw rural land prices skyrocket. And obviously, to our earlier conversation, conservation easement incentives are based on development value of land. The development value goes up, the incentives go up, and there's more reason why people want to do conservation easements. I think the other reason that we heard a lot about was during the pandemic, more and more people wanted to be outside to recreate. And so there were more people on the trails, more people in the campgrounds, more congestion in our public lands. And people were beginning to realize how much development there was. And I think there was just a general awareness about kind of the, the finite amount of time that we have to conserve a very finite amount of land. So I, we saw public opinion really ramp up, and then we saw a lot of landowner interest ramp up. And I think that's really what we're, what we're trying to take advantage of now, while the, while the uh, land values are high and, and while the public interest is high. Well, obviously, you just talked about how the cost of these conservation easements is going up. Um, that, that money comes from, like you said, the state, the federal government, um, some nonprofits. Um, you guys are a nonprofit. How's your funding? Do you need more funding to keep up with all this work? We could always use more funding, uh, of course. <laughs> How can people as, support you? As a nonprofit. So, I mean, Colorado Open Lands is a nonprofit organization, and uh, we, we function primarily through um, the contributions of individuals. And what we do with that money is that we it pays for our staff time, and our staff then can apply for these large federal grants that actually purchase the conservation easements. There's really no way that our private philanthropy could possibly pay for conservation easements because we raise... 10 or 20,000, 10 or 20 million dollars a year in public funds to do conservation and restoration on the land. Uh, so private philanthropy just pays for our ability to do that. The exciting part is that it's an amazing leveraging opportunity. So for every dollar that we raise uh, in conservation, uh, in private philanthropy, we can usually raise 15 to 20 dollars in public funds to actually do conservation on the ground. So that's that's a, a helpful and positive way uh, that, that people can have an impact on land conservation. Tony, this has been a great conversation. I, I wonder, what is the question that we have forgotten to ask you today? Or what's the question that landowners forget to ask you when you're talking to them? I'm not sure if there's a question you forgot to ask. Uh, I think, though, that um, what people need to remember about private versus public land is how so much land in the West became private. It was through the Homestead Acts. And so when you think about people coming out here and choosing their 160 acres, uh, what did they choose? You know, they chose the land that was next to the water, the best soils, where the wildlife was, because that was your food source, places that are accessible that you can get to. So all of those things uh, are important to remember about while there's lots of debates about public land, Private lands can actually be the best wildlife habitat, the best soils, uh, the best views and things. So it's important for us not to forget all the public benefits that are provided by conserved private lands. Tony Caligari, president and CEO of Colorado Open Lands. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really illuminating. It's been fun. Thanks for having me.
All right, here's a little good news to close out the episode. California-based conservation group Wildlands Conservancy has purchased a 320-acre piece of private property on the edge of Bears Ears National Monument near Bluff, Utah, with the intention of returning it to its original stewards. Wildlands is inviting the five tribes of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition to co-manage the land. But there's one caveat. No development can occur on the land, which is rich with ancestral sites like cliff dwellings and petroglyphs. Wildlands told the LA Times that some of the tribes were initially skeptical of the deal, but eventually agreed upon a mutual goal of preserving the land as it is. The group is still working out the details of how it will be managed, but it's likely that some of the land will be reserved for tribal members to conduct ceremonies, while the rest will be available for the public to visit. With respect, of course. And that is all for today, folks. As always, you can reach us at podcast at westernpriorities.org. We always love hearing your suggestions for future guests and topics, so don't hesitate to get in touch. And please go give us a follow on TikTok, Threads, or Instagram if you haven't already. We're going to be a whole lot more active on those platforms starting this year. Thanks again to Tony Caligari for filling us in on private land conservation. And thank you for listening to The Landscape.